Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is the podcast where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Today's episode is sponsored by the new book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion While Doing It. It's available on Amazon, and you can check out more details at survivetheimplosion.com. Speaking of books, we have the author of Film Festival Secrets, Christopher Holland, on today's show. I first met Chris at the Portland Film Festival that just happened up here uh, just recently. We kept bumping into each other at all the panels and workshops and parties, so it was just a great opportunity to meet somebody who's been in the industry for a long time and has a lot of good tidbits about how to properly navigate and be successful if you're looking to bring your film to the film festival circuit. So my first question to Chris was essentially how he got started, how he ended up writing the book on Film Festival Secrets. And without further ado, here he is, the Film Festival coach. If you really need a coach to navigate this world, he's the guy you want to look to. Christopher Holland on the Film Trooper podcast. Well, uh, we're going to get into some ancient history here, but uh, <laughs> about 20 years ago, um, I was writing reviews of movies online. Um, it was the mid-90s, and not everybody was doing that. So uh, my college roommate uh, and I, who, you know, we were out of college, but we just started doing this thing together, and we got a lot of attention for it. Um, and that's when I sort of thought, hey, maybe a career in the film industry isn't a crazy idea. Uh, and of course, uh, about 10 years later, the bottom fell out of film criticism as, <laughs> as a career. Uh, so when I had the opportunity to do so, I went and basically volunteered full time at the Austin Film Festival. I just moved to Austin and thought, well, this is something I've never done before and don't know a whole lot about. So I just went in and started doing it and fell in love with it. Uh, and I've had a lot of jobs in and around the film industry since in distribution and in marketing and working at and with other film festivals. But at some point, um, pretty early on, I became aware that I was listening to festival staffers, particularly the ones at Austin with whom I was sharing office space. Uh, they were just on the phone all the time answering the same questions over and over again from filmmakers. And it's probably fortunate that, you know, I was doing this like around 2005 when email was a force, but not as much of a force as it is now. Because I think now all those conversations would be taking place by email or text message or whatever, or on Facebook, and I wouldn't have overheard as much as I did. But I got to overhear all those questions and overhear all those answers. And I thought, boy, wouldn't it be a time saver if somebody would just write down all this stuff in a book and that way the you know festival people could just say hey there's a book you should read it it's got answers to all these questions and it turned out the somebody who ought to write it was me so i did <laughs> um and you know published it on amazon and uh didn't really have a whole lot of thought for it being anything other than a resource um but it sort of grew into a little side business of consulting for um, for filmmakers and just basically coaching people through the process. So you're essentially like the film festival coach, you know? 
right? That is that is a, a fine way to look at it. Yes. Perhaps I will steal that. <laughs> the film festival coach. I was wondering, like, what is your perspective on the purpose of film festivals? Because, you know, we know about the sort of the big ones, the ones that get in the, the press and like um, the ones that get films sold or they're, they're like a springboard to the Oscar race and so on. But there are a lot. There's so, so many film festivals popping up all over the place. And I was curious what your perspective on that, like what is the purpose of a film festival and what is your, what are your thoughts on why there's so many? Well, I think the reasons, the number of reasons there are to have a film festival are almost as many as the number of film festivals themselves. I think filmmakers tend to look at festivals in a very homogenous way. They kind of assume that on a basic level, they're all the same. Uh, when in reality, there are numerous types of film festival and size and prestige and, you know, the reasons that those festivals have for doing what they're doing is, I think, vastly different from what filmmakers think. Uh, filmmakers tend to view, and I'm going to overgeneralize grossly here, so if you are a filmmaker and, you know, I don't feel that way. Yeah. Just know that this is based on general experience. Take no personal offense, but filmmakers tend to think of festivals as a means to an end. Um, a festival is where I'm going to get discovered. I'm going to make a film. I'm going to send it to festivals. They are going to realize my Kevin Smith-like genius. Please don't email me about whether Kevin Smith is or is not a genius. Right, right. But you're... And, gotcha. <laughs> and... And, you know, I'll get discovered by Harvey Weinstein and I'll be in the film business. And festivals are aware of that, of course, especially at the higher end, like Sundance and Tribeca and South by Southwest and all that. But they are also, you know, in business, number one, to continue existing and to serve an audience. The... Uh, reasons that people started film festivals 20, 30 years ago was generally more about, you know, serving the audience and bringing films that don't get enough, you know, attention, uh, particularly before the internet explosion, you know, to audiences that didn't have an, another chance to see them. And that's still true in a lot of ways. But right now, because you can just put a film out on the internet and make it available to anyone, anytime, anywhere. The purpose that festivals serve sort of in the ecosystem is as curators and less so as, um, you know, exhibition points. Interesting. What do you have you, what have you found of most of the film festival directors that, or that somebody who started a film festival? Um, is there like a, inherent thread that's common amongst all of them of why they started a particular film festival in the first place? No, there isn't. I mean, there, there are sort of clumps and types. I mean, there are people who start horror film festivals or other fantasy type film festivals because they just love the fantastic. They love that genre film and they, you know, feel, and they want to um, either be a part of it or provide a better showcase for it or whatever. Some people do it, um, as an offshoot to another event, like South by Southwest didn't have a film festival until, you know, relatively recently in their history. And they added film as another component of what they do. 
Uh, some film festivals get started, believe it or not, as sort of attempts to bump up a particular town's tourist activity. Uh, so there's lots of different reasons. I mean, some filmmakers start film festivals, A, to have a place to show their films because they, you know, haven't gotten into any other festivals, and B, because they, you know, they've poured a lot of their own money into submissions fees and they figure it's got to be a, an easy way to make money. And they, they learn the truth shortly thereafter. But, uh, uh, you know, those are just some of the reasons that film festivals get started. Yeah, interesting. I had on a few episodes back on Film Marketing Fridays, uh, Brian Patrick of the uh, Indie Skyline Film Fe- or the Skyline Indie Film Festival or Film Fest, mm-hmm. he calls it, um, out there in uh, North Carolina, and he has like an independent bookstore. And because he saw the audience coming in and, and enjoying like you know uh, different types of books that you wouldn't be able to find, he was able to start a film festival around the celebration of art in that sense of the independence. So, yeah, it's interesting to see how different people uh, approach the festival, um, you know, reason of even starting one. Can I ask you then, now that we have like a sort of overgeneralization, understanding like the uh, the mindset of a, of a filmmaker coming into a film festival, of looking for a means to end, um, how should they approach a film festival? What, what, what would be the ideal in terms, I know that every festival is different, but... Is there something that a film fest, uh, a filmmaker should approach the festivals in a different way that that you see as a common mistake that should um, be corrected? Well, first of all, I think preparing for the festival circuit earlier in your filmmaking process uh, will help you out quite a bit. A lot of filmmakers don't even think about festivals as other than sort of a pie in the sky object until the film is finished. And then they start digging into, well, how much money am I going to need for this? And which festival should I look at? And, you know, and that's actually, um, you know, not a great time to do that because maybe you've made a film that, you know, for whatever reason is not what festival programmers would consider to be a festival film. Like if you've made it of a length that isn't typically what festivals play, or if you've made a particular kind of film or style of film that, for whatever reason, festivals find unpalatable. All of these things can get in your way. And if you don't know these things beforehand, then you can wind up having the objective of wanting to get into festivals, but having a film that's wholly unsuitable for the festival circuit. Um, The other really big point is to kind of know what you want to get from the festival circuit before you try to play it. So if your ultimate aim is to get behind a cause and bring more exposure to that cause, there's a different way of approaching the festival circuit with that goal in mind. But if your goal is to sell your film or to build a career or, you know, get more chicks or whatever, like <laughs> you need to know what your, what your goals are you know, you need to know where you want to go before you can draw a map that gets you there. It's interesting that you talked about the length of a film. I had a friend that uh, wasn't, I think, I don't think he got his film in because, not simply because of content. They looked at the total running time and the direct, the film, the, I guess these festival directors had to make a decision like, okay, no, that's too long. You know, it's like it, we're looking for like hour and a half, 90 minute, 80 minute, you know, 
films or something like that, not two hour, two and a half hours, you know, like, so if, I don't know if that's what I heard, but what, what, what is your experience with uh, that type of thing in specific to like short films and feature films? Well, it's, I mean, it's a much bigger issue on the short film realm, obviously, because it's not that much more difficult to make a, a 20 minute film as opposed to a 10 minute film. It's actually really hard to make a good 10 minute film. Um, but on the feature side, you can go long too. Features, you know, tend to be somewhere between 70 and a hundred minutes in the film festival world. And, uh, we can talk about different lengths for distribution if you want to want to go there. But, um, on the short side, you know, anything over 20 minutes is looked at with a healthy dose of skepticism going in. Very few short films justify the 20 minute running time. Uh, and really, um, under 15 is sort of the sweet spot to go for. Uh, I've been known to tell filmmakers, if you really want to get a running start on the festival circuit, don't start with your passion project. Don't start with a story you really, really want to tell. Find a really good joke and build a like two to three minute short film around that joke. <laughs> Make it funny. Get in. Tell the joke. Get out. And then submit that to festivals. It'll be super easy to program um, because it doesn't cost the festival much in terms of the total running time it's going to take out of a shorts block. And funny is hard to do, so but it's also really appealing. So if you can play six, twelve, you know, good festivals um, with this, you know, super short film, then when you have that passion project ready to go, you have a network of people who know your work, of people who like what you did before and are willing to watch your longer project with, you know, a warmer eye, right? They're not, you're not coming at them cold. They're like, Oh, that's that guy who had that funny short film that, that we liked so much. And he was a blast to have out. Of course, we'll take a look at your 15 minute drama for whatever. Uh, and there's a much higher chance that you'll get that project in. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like greasing the wheels. It's, it's the first step in building that relationship with the program directors, you know, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You need to, I mean, people always, I'll say people, it's a sort of a truism of the festival circuit that it's not how good your film is. It's who you know. It is how good your film is. Your film has to be of a certain quality to get on the circuit. But knowing people who like you and are willing to, you know, maybe take your film over a film they like just as much because they know you and they want to continue to support your work is an essential part of the process. Yeah, because people are people, you know. So it's like a, there's a difference between like one film they know the, the the filmmaker versus maybe an equally, you know, similar film that they, they don't know, you know, who are they going to pick? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a um, certain amount of cachet to discovering a filmmaker, right. To being someone who played their very first film and continues to support their work as they go along. That doesn't mean that you can just turn out junk and, you know, have it play the festival circuit. No questions asked. Uh, just because you have relationships, but it does sure does make things a whole lot easier. 
Yeah, it's interesting. So now we're looking at like, okay, don't make a film between 15 minutes and uh, 65 minutes, you know, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> right, right. And and that's, I mean, that's an unfortunate reality of the circuit. And some festivals do sort of try to counter program against, against that. South by Southwest has a block they call medium shorts, which <laughs> is, you know, shorts that are, you know, roughly 30 to 40 minutes long. But, you know, they only have one block. And every block is roughly 90 minutes to two hours. So guess how many of those they can play out of guess how many of those they received. Yeah. And and furthermore, guess how many of those 30 to 40 minute shorts are any good. They tend to overstay their welcome or be such a compressed version of a feature length idea yeah. that they end up not getting their story across properly. Hmm. Interesting. What is your favorite um, festival to go to that in like what is like? one of the best moments that you can remember at a festival that just like that kind of reaffirmed your belief of like, ah, this is why I do this. Cause I love this part. Well, my favorite festival to go to as an attendee, just as a guy who loves movies would definitely be fantastic fest. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a sci-fi nerd at heart have been forever since you know, seeing Star Wars at five years old or whatever. And um, that festival is fearless in the choices that it makes. It doesn't matter if it's in Danish or, you know, whatever obstacles there might be to understanding it. Like, if it's weird and funny and fun to watch, they're going to play it. So if you really want to see sort of the best of what's coming in genre film, Fantastic Fest is the place to be. And and you layer on top of that the fact that it's at the Alamo Draft House, which is renowned for a superior viewing experience and, you know, food and booze and a sense of community. I mean, Fantastic Fest delivers all of that in spades. Uh, unfortunately, now that I'm removed from Austin uh, <laughs> and, you know, Fantastic Fest is hugely popular, um, it's difficult to justify the expense to go back. But I went for the first five plus years um, before I moved away and would go back in a heartbeat if I could. Nice. And what's great about that, it's such a specific niche. And that's one thing that I'm seeing in evolution of film festivals, which is, you know, if you're a fan of this genre or these types of, you know, films or, or films from this place, like it's, it, we're beginning to see sort of that niche down, niche down uh, celebration of cinema in that sense. So um, I wanted to ask you about other things too in terms of filmmakers. Like what are like the five things filmmakers get wrong other than the length of uh, their film? But the whole how a filmmaker goes about the submission process in terms of when they're at a festival, like how do they interact with the uh, film, the film festival staff? Things like that. Well, I mean, the very first thing to keep in mind is that all of this is as much business as it is art. And you need to approach your festival run as kind of like a wholesaler who has a product that they want to get to retailers who will then get it to the end customer, which is the audience. So that retailer, you know, although the festival's stated purpose is to celebrate independent film and bring great films to great audiences, 
what they're really in the business of doing is getting butts into seats. And nine times out of ten, they will go with the film that's going to put butts in seats as opposed to the film that, you know, may appeal to their artistic sensibilities or, or whatever. So this is why you see films that are maybe not as high quality getting into, you know, into festivals. It's because there was some other factor there that uh, kept, you know, the audience's interest and made them think, oh, this is going to sell tickets. Uh, the reason butts and seats is so important is because that's where the money flows from. Not necessarily from ticket sales, although that's part of it, but if all of your events are full, it generates an excitement, it generates reputation, and excitement and reputation draw sponsors, and sponsors are where the money's at, you know? Interesting. And not necessarily submission fees, um, because there's so many, but, you know... I was, I think there was, I did some calculation like Sundance having, oh gosh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, you probably know better, of how many submissions they get per year. And like if each submission was roughly, you know, like $50 a pop, I mean, they make, that's a lot of money they can generate just from uh, submission fees. It is, but in terms of their overall budget, it's actually a really small fraction. Okay. Um, the... Last numbers I can remember were somewhere around 12,000 submissions to Sundance. And that's including shorts, including features, docs, narratives, all that, all that business. Um, and if you calculate that out, and here's where my math is going to fail me, I think it's like, <laughs> what, 50 times 12,000? What's that, $600,000 roughly? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, $600,000, you know, when you think of all the things that Sundance has to pay for, it's not actually that much money. They have 12 people on staff who just watch and program short films. If each of those people is making $40,000 a year, which is not a lot of money living in L.A., let me tell you, that's most of your $600,000 gone right there. And that's just the short people, right? We're not even talking about the feature, uh, you know, programmers. And that probably eats up the rest of it right there. And so, you know... I'm not going to, you know, make sweeping generalizations about what percentage of a festival's revenue comes from submission fees because mm -hmm. it's different all across the board. But for those festivals that are as big and as reputable as, say, a South by Southwest or a Sundance, it is a vanishingly small portion of their, their revenue. The reason those fees exist is for providing a barrier to entry. Mm -hmm. If, you know... Sundance didn't charge any fees for their submissions, they would be getting 50,000 instead of 15,000 submissions. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I see. Yeah. What is the, um, we were mentioning like filmmakers understanding what their, what their plan should be or expectations should be about going to a festival. Um, a lot of the, you know, experts talk about there's only a handful of real major festivals that actually coincide with a, you know, purchasers or sales agents, you know, that not every festival has that pedigree or an opportunity to take your film to be, um, you know, sold. That's eventually what every, every, most filmmakers are trying to get to is use this film festival circuit as a springboard to get the film sold. But if you're not in some of those major festivals, what should the uh, filmmaker's uh, goal or, um, you know, plan be if, if, it, if, it, if that doesn't happen? Well, I think 
the opportunities for distribution at film festivals are much, much lower and rarer now than they used to be, certainly. But even back in the quote unquote good old days of the 90s, um, even then they weren't thick on the ground. You know, the, the bidding wars for particular films and large advances and all that kind of stuff, like even that was for that was for the one percent even back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can look up various statistics on you know how many f- films in any given year that played Sundance actually went on to to get a distribution deal that sort of thing. But I really do think that you know especially if you're early on in your career and you haven't done this before, you should be planning on distributing the film yourself from the get-go certainly being aware of the other opportunities that are out there but you know really realizing that the fallback is much 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 more likely than a distributor coming to you saying i want your film let's do this and taking it off your hands um that sucks that's you know not part of the american filmmaker's dream i think american filmmakers and and you know filmmakers anywhere who make a movie uh, really, they just want to do the art, right? They don't want to have to be the businessman. Yeah. And the reality is, you know, you have to be both. Yeah, definitely. What examples have you seen in the festival circuit where a filmmaker knew, like, okay, you know what? It's It was evident that they were building this for a self-distribution, you know, strategy, but they embraced the festival they're at and they used it to their advantage for, you know, eventually whatever they needed to do to, to release it as, uh, as a self-distributor. Um, is there any examples that you can remember or like how a certain filmmakers went about handling this, the festival circuit that was like, oh, that's an interesting thing to take note of. Uh, that should be du- duplicated or replicated by other filmmakers to, to make it all worthwhile. You know, I'm going to struggle to come up with a, an example that's super recent. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I can give you the example of a film from about 10 years ago um, called Blood Car. Hmm. Uh, And this is a super low budget indie horror film about a car that requires um, human blood to run. It's like in a future of, uh, you know, gas prices at $20 a gallon or whatever, a guy's trying to invent a car that runs on wheatgrass and accidentally invents a car that runs on human blood. And so, but the thing is because there are no fast cars around, he finds out that having a car that runs on anything at all is a chick magnet. And in order to keep his new girlfriend on the hook, uh, he has to keep feeding people to the car. All right. So sort of high concept, but good hook, great genre flick, really funny. Uh, And, you know, the filmmaker, a guy named Alex Orr, was really looking for, he wanted distribution and, you know, did a few different things with uh, different distributors, including the one that I worked for called B-Side. But he always had an eye towards building his own audience in his own way and getting people behind the film rather than relying on the distributor to do it for him. So um, when he would go to festivals... He had, you know, these little one-inch buttons that promote films are kind of ubiquitous. But most of the time, you see them just sort of scattered around on tables at festivals and whatever, figuring people are going to pick this up and go, what's this? Oh, that's cool. I'll take this and and wear it. And that 
kind of happens, but mm-hmm. not all that much. What he did was he took his leading lady, a very attractive young lady who later became his wife, and as he would walk around the festival and, you know, sort of pitch people on coming to his film, she would sort of casually sidle up to people and smile nice and say, hey, can I give you a blood car button? And she'd pin it on you. And it was a nice personal touch. And who doesn't like, you know, hanging out with pretty actresses? And, you know, he basically did a one man or one man and one woman campaign of, you know, smiling and shaking hands and making sure that people knew that his film existed. And that's the kind of, you know, soft sell hustle that I think really endears people to you and to your film. It's like it's like running a campaign. It's a political campaign. Like, mm-hmm. hey, how are you? And interesting. <laughs> yeah. Now, what he what he wasn't doing in that process was, you know, capturing any sort of information about his audience. He wasn't getting business cards or um, email addresses, to my knowledge. Anyway. Yeah. Um, certainly not with the interactions I had with him. But you know, I think. Uh, Certainly, that's probably part of his his ammo these days. He's still making films, still hitting the uh, the festival scene. Um, went to L.A. and did a lot of um, reality TV before he figured out, oh, I can just move back to Atlanta and do a lot of reality TV there. Yeah. Uh, but um, you know, he, he's still out there, and I'm sure you know he continues to build his audience in that way. Yeah, definitely. It, it looks like he's uh, uh, credited as a, a UPM uh, co-producer on Blue Ruin, which was a kind of an indie film festival darling uh, mm-hmm. a year or two years ago. Um, so that's an interesting story. Just simply approaching it like a political campaign, you know, build that audience that way. <laughs> right, because, you know, maybe they're not into this film or, or even if they are into this film, this film comes and goes, right? Yeah. You know, you're, you're, if you're going to be doing this as a career filmmaker, you're going to need that person as a fan of you long-term from this project to the next. And, uh, you know, that it's not a direct answer to your what do you do about distribution question, mm-hmm. but audience building is the key. You know, you've got to get to a point where you have enough people who know you and like you that, they're at least interested enough to click on whatever your next project is. Yeah. It's, um, th- that's where they say it's, if you can control the audience or you have them on your side, they go with you, whatever, you know, platform you jump from, as long as you take care of them. What, um, what question do you wish filmmakers would ask you more often or ask about the festival uh, experience more often that nobody seems to ask? That nobody seems to ask. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's real easy to do. What's the question you get most often? The question that you wish people would ask is generally, um, you know, is it worth holding on to this film and working on getting this film into festivals or should I just go make something else? Um, And that's not a question I wish they would ask by the time they get to me, unfortunately, because by the time they get to me, they are sort of beyond the point of no return. Uh, But if they would ask themselves that question in the production stages before they spent a ton of money on post-production, which seems to be the real sticking point. Like if I suggest that a film be shorter, 
the answer I'm going to get back is, oh, well, I've already spent a ton of money on, you know, sound sweetening and soundtrack and color correction. I can't really go back and edit it now. It's done. <laughs> and that's a really terrible reason for your film not to get into film festivals is because you don't have the option of making it a better film. Yeah. So, so maybe the, the real answer to my question is, to your question, sorry, is what's the question I wish they would ask themselves more often? Hmm. And that, that question is, you know, is my film good enough for film festivals? Is it of quality to people other than me and my friends and my family? Because that's where it falls down is when people don't test their films against people who don't know them. Yeah. You were mentioning something about some uh, statistic. I can't even say that <laughs> word. But the uh, some stat about the number of films in, in, uh, that are submitted to a film festival, like something like 80% are usually fil- first-time filmmakers. That means that only 20, 25% are actually returning you know, filmmakers that have already been through the process before. So there's a lot of first-time filmmakers never get to that second film to submit to the festivals. It's something like that. I can't remember, but we had a, you were telling me about this in Portland. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly right. The turnover is really, really high because people get into, you know, making a film with a lot of enthusiasm, and then they hit this wall of, not everyone loves what they do as much as they do. And rather than um, recognizing that hardly anyone ever gets it right the first time, uh, and maybe they should practice their crafts more and learn and you know continue to experiment and accept failure as part of the process, they quit. Um, and I guess if they you know don't have that much persistence, then that's a good thing, right? But it's a shame, uh, and I try to help people realize that this is a process. And if you knew everything the first time out, and if your work was perfect the very first time you did it, well, what fun would that be? There's no room for learning. There's no room for getting better. Yeah. There's also the thing a lot of people, they, they go into believing somehow they were able to raise all this friends and family's money and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to make a film God, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it, these stories do exist out there, and it's really heartbreaking because it's like, oh my gosh, because they're living with some old data or this old belief of make it, get it in to a festival, be discovered. That whole that whole unfortunate pattern that goes that way, where you're saying they just want to be an artist, they just want to to have someone else discover them and take care of them in that respect because they're living off that dream, but. Uh, that's or, or they get sucked into the new myth, which is that if you make a film and just put it on VHX or Vimeo on demand or whatever, you know, that the audience will just sort of somehow discover them. Yeah. Right? Especially if they get into a film festival and then they have those festival laurels and that's just going to make it blow up. The real truth is that it's a much harder slog than that. And there's a lot of, you know, audience building, you know, one at a time that has to go on before something catches fire. I mean, ask yourself, how many viral videos are there each year compared to how many videos on YouTube are there each year? <laughs> you know, each the, day. the numbers are yeah. the same, right? You know, yeah. so, um, yes, there is the opportunity for something of quality to go viral and blow up, but that's it's a very, very rare thing. Yeah, definitely. Now, you have over at 
uh, filmfestivalsecrets.com. You, you have a blog. You have a lot of resources. You have mm-hmm. your, your book, uh, a lot of giveaways. But you also have a podcast that um, you've been doing. And I wanted to know what's your perspective or the main bits of advice that you've gotten from your guests that seem they all seem to bring up, like maybe the current state of film now. Um, like I said, you, you've had you know some really great guests on. Like I think I was just looking through this really quick. You senior programmer uh, for South by Southwest, uh, things like that. You have Emily Best, our, our friend of ours, our mutual friend, mm-hmm. and um, and more and more so like that. I was just curious what what has been your takeaway from these interviews that you've been doing on your podcast? Well, I think the the really big one that, uh, you know, permeates everyone I talk to is that story is the number one most important thing you can bring to a film. You know, a film can look great, it can sound great, it can have the best actors, it can have stars even, and all of that stuff only gets you so far until you come up against a story that doesn't really any go, go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, or that fails to satisfy, or that just isn't well-written. Um, there's that particular itch that we as humans, you know, sort of hone in on as what satisfies us and what makes us happy, and that has something to do with conflict and the resolution of that conflict. And if you don't have um, something in the way of an arc, even in a short film, right like jokes are stories they have that you know sort of setup and punchline and if your you know film doesn't do that or fails to do it in you know an economic manner takes too long to get there or stumbles at all along the road um you're really in trouble it doesn't matter how you know what camera you shot on or who it was that was in your film yeah, it comes back to the most basic thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's true all over the place. I mean, um, whether it's uh, in your marketing, right? If you're writing emails for your audience, you need to tell them a little story along the way of why they're hearing from you now and what's the next step in your film's journey of its life. Uh, you know, I'm not saying you have to have three-act story structure for every single you know email or tweet or whatever that you put out. But everything that you do needs to add to this to your story um, when you're doing film marketing, as well as you know making sure that the story structure of your films is just absolutely as well crafted and tight as it can be. Hmm. It's interesting. Uh, we were at a film together at the Portland Film Festival, and uh, it was it was delightful. In you know it was all good feelings afterwards, and then but. You know, people leave and they're like, they're on to like the next thing, whatever their their life's you know problems are. You know, and it's mm-hmm. I realized thinking back, like, oh my gosh, the filmmakers failed to like do anything, but be like, all right, before you leave, you know, go to this simple URL and you know, right now you get this gift or something, because or send like or wait before you leave, you know, fill out your email address or something like that. They, they did nothing to collect our data or collect uh, our email address to uh to follow up with us as before they release the film you know to uh to the video on demand market so i thought it was interesting you know like oh my gosh because now i i'm having a hard time remembering what the film was i remember kind of was it was fun but at the same time like all these follow-ups that still need to happen like even though they they probably came away going hey we got a pretty good response 
Mm-hmm. And then you look and like there's a chasm of like, well, nothing translated to, you know, the release or, or the, the social media, you know, promotion, anything like that. Um, you really have to work on it to remind me if as an audience member, like, hey, you know, you have this film. Uh, this is all the other fun stuff we're doing with it. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about it. I might have told somebody about it, but it's not like that it comes up to mind because it's so difficult for anybody to find independent film on the like Netflix or uh, Apple iTunes and so on in terms of the immediate scroll because you know we're still seeing studio fare or distribution films or films with distribution behind them like you have to do a hardcore search to find you know these particular films buried within these platforms so I don't know um, your takeaway from uh, the festival or the the recent festivals you've been at uh, have you seen an uptick on people trying to collect email addresses and so on well, I, I will say that festivals represent one of the few really concrete opportunities to find and connect to an audience that, you know, you otherwise wouldn't have access to, right? It, it's, there are very few festival screenings, uh, particularly premieres, that don't come off well simply because everybody's sort of you know, digging the vibe of we're here on the ground floor, something exciting has happened. It's the beginning of something, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, lots of people have come away going, oh, our festival premiere was great and the audience loved it and this film does really well in front of audiences. I don't understand why it isn't playing any other festivals. And, well, the reason is that the audience is bringing their own energy to it and, you know, that uh, is an opportunity for you to capitalize on. Um, while you've got them there in the room. So, uh, yes, getting into festivals is, you know, part of the dream, but capitalizing on the opportunities that are there in networking, in audience building, in marketing, you know, that requires some forethought and it requires an infrastructure. Uh, Whether that infrastructure is uh, something like what the Yes Men did at South by Southwest, Um, I forget the exact name of their film, but it was like We Are the Yes Men or something like that. Are you, are you familiar with these guys? Uh, no, no, actually, I'm just looking well, you, up. You right can now. Google them to put them in the show notes, but um, they, they're kind of a hybrid art collective and political action group. And they do things like print up fake copies of the New York Times to, you know, that um, envision a world without, you know, some horrible right wing politician or, or whatever. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. It's just. Okay. His- it's like the yes men are revolting or yes yeah, that's yeah. what it was um and i think there was another one before that was like hello where the yes men are or whatever uh-huh. um great film lots of fun they had a big premiere at south by southwest and this was i want to say five or six years back but they had clipboards with signups at the freaking paramount theater which holds like 1800 people and they just made sure they had enough of them that they could collect email addresses at their premiere. Uh, it's not easy to do that. It requires a certain amount of coordination of people who are there to support you and make sure that those clipboards make the rounds and that you've purchased the clipboards, right? That you've printed out the pieces of paper and that you've talked to the film festival and said, this is what we want to do. Now, they were particularly incentivized to do this because, you know, political action is what they're all about. And it mm-hmm. gave them you know, kind of an excuse to, to make a big deal out of this, but anybody could do it. Um, and some f- film festivals will be into it and some film festivals won't, but you should at least try. 
Yeah. Uh, and there are, you know, if, if the idea of typing in a bunch of email addresses sounds like death to you, you know, there are programs for the iPad that will capture, you know, MailChimp makes one. Yeah. You know, that just set simple setup form and they punch their little information in. And in a room of, you know, let's face it, most festival audiences are somewhere between, you know, zero and 300 people. So it's not like it takes you that long to, to get um, those things punched in. You know, that's a place where you can capture, you know, easy 50 to 100 email addresses basically without even trying. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I know there's another way, too. You can actually pay a service to have everybody. Okay, everybody. Text the word, you know, film or movie to uh, this number, like 999-799. So everybody pull out their phone right now, text right now, and then from there you can collect their email address because you're able to send them something through mobile. And it's, you got them right there. They're all excited. Simply everybody pull out their phone and just tell them to text, you know, a word to a specific number. Yeah, or just way, making yeah. sure that you have a short URL to the mobile-friendly sign-up form on your website, mm-hmm. right? If you can tell them it's bit.ly slash sign-up, right, then they can go right there on their phone and type it away. But it's when your website isn't mobile-friendly or you haven't fought ahead far enough to, and you have to say, oh, make them go to my big nephew the movie.com slash sign up <laughs> yeah. that's sign up with a dash between the sign and the up that's not going to work yeah so you got to remove as much of that friction as you can but it you know once you've done the work ahead you know it makes building that audience a lot easier what have you found in terms of um we were talking about success stories and stuff like that but um can you can you recall a, a film that had like a very good you know, festival presence or festival run and, or people were talking about, and then they did a very good job of like maybe doing self-distribution right out of it. Was it, was it the only one you could think it was blood car or car blood? Um, hmm. You know, I, I'm sure that I have those stories, but I, I'll tell you one of the, the bigger success stories from the distributor where I worked and B side was very different from other distributors in that, um, they believed very, they, we believed mm-hmm. very strongly in the theatrical experience, but we didn't believe strongly in paying a bunch of money, what's called P&A money, prints and advertising money for, you know, engaging theaters, you know, which are businesses and require lots of money and advertising those screenings and all that kind of stuff. You know, we believed that the audience experience was important to driving home video sales. And there's a lot of history around that that sort of proves that but um we didn't believe that it actually being in a theater theater was important it could be in a bar it could be in a living room it could be anywhere so uh along with that the idea that knowing who your audience is going into it and sort of priming your audience to be ready for that and turning it into a cause for them uh is a really good way to incentivize so the film that we were working on was called Super High Me, like Super Size Me, <laughs> yeah. but getting high instead of eating food. So yeah, yeah, Super yeah. High Me. Uh, Doug Benson, who's a fairly famous pot comedian, less so then, but you know, since the film and subsequent stuff has, has gotten more famous. Um, it was his film, and he, what he basically did was he stopped smoking pot for 30 days, 
went through a battery of like mental and physical and whatever tests and then smoked pot every day for 30 days in, you know, very controlled circumstances um, and then took the same battery of tests. And along the way, told the story of pot legalization, medical pot legalization in California and how the um, then Bush administration was sort of cracking down on, you know, the the federal government and the state government were basically in direct conflict with each other and still are. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it was incredibly funny because it was done by a comedian. It had famous people in it because he knew a bunch of famous comedians. It was about a controversial subject with a highly, you know, this was a film that was built from the ground up to be distributable. And rather than go with some huge distributor, they went with us because they sort of recognized that as a cause, as, you know, a sort of grassroots kind of thing, it was going to go over a lot better with their audience than it would have if Warner Brothers had just picked it up and put it out there. And they were right. I mean, I used to know these statistics by heart, these numbers by heart, but, you know, with we basically made the film available digitally and on DVD because this was 2006, 2007, I want to say. And DVD was still very much a thing. Um, and let base, people basically buy what we called roll your own, haha, <laughs> roll your own kits. And so they could screen the film on April 20th of that day. And, you know, and, and they had the rights to show it in public. They could charge tickets, whatever. It was basically a huge rollout of a documentary film on all of these different screens. I think it was like somewhere in the neighborhood of 8,000 screens. Wow. I I could be wrong about that, but it was definitely over five. Um, and it was at the time and may still be the largest quote unquote theatrical rollout of a documentary film ever. Interesting. And yeah. did, you know, reasonably well for us. I think it, we were in partnership with uh, Netflix and a couple of other different, you know, aggregators who were going to get it out onto those channels because we didn't have those relationships at that time. But, you know, it, it did reasonably well and, you know, was certainly a huge stepping stone for, for Benson. I think he would agree. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. So thinking in those terms right and and offering people something of value in this case it was community right this is something you can do that's more than just watching a movie it's watching a movie with a community of like-minded people and forwarding your cause you know that and maybe you know your film is a comedy and doesn't have that kind of cause maybe the thing you offer is you know, um, interaction with your cast, or maybe it's a t-shirt that is the exact same as the Napoleon Dynamite did this, right? Mm -hmm. Like there were all those sort of custom printed shirts that the characters wore in those and those shirts still sell, right? So, um, you know, that extra bit of value beyond just this is a movie and you will watch it and you will pay me is essential to um, getting your audience to, you know, to buy in. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Well, hey, you know what? We're wrapping up near the hour mark. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for um, coming on the show. And I learned a lot. I was just, I kind of got lost in what you were talking about. And I realized, oh, I'm on a show. Hold on. <laughs> well, it's absolutely my pleasure. And I, I fear we talked more about distribution and audience building than about festivals in particular. But, um, you know, folks can find me at filmfestivalsecrets.com and, and ask those questions. Yeah, most definitely. 
And uh, it was really awesome to have a chance to like hang out with you at the Portland Film Festival and talk more in depth about all this type of stuff. Um, but I, it's it's it was very helpful to hear because, like you said, the film makers have a tendency to look at festivals as a means to an end and the end is the distribution part of it but seeing like how they can utilize the festival circuit in the proper way can, can give them a better shot at the success they're looking for anyway but at the same time you know um you know understanding how the game is played uh, so they can best play that game and be uh successful yeah well i'll, I'll tell you one last story um it's a, a guy who's Name, oh God, I'm never going to forgive myself for forgetting his name at this very moment. But he was, he's uh, what you would call um, an indie Hollywood producer, right? Mm -hmm. He had connections with distributors. Um, he knew what kind of films they were looking for. And he would basically, you know, make a film based on a concept that they bought. He would give them that film and they would, you know, that's how he made money um, was simply by setting up, you know, ideas and storylines to get people to pay for that thing to be made and then delivering the product. And he was bypassing the festival circuit altogether uh, and didn't really believe in festivals. And, and I understand that, but he ended up at the Oxford Film Festival with me a few years ago and he and I got to know each other, got to be friends. And like, he kind of came away with it going, okay, maybe festivals don't offer the concrete, distribution opportunities that I thought they would and found that they didn't or that other people think they do, but they do offer you a chance to find your tribe. Uh, they do offer you a chance to connect with other like-minded people who might hire you to work on their next film or who might volunteer to work on your next low budget product or project. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's one of the big values of film festivals that people overlook all the time is it's not just about, business or not just about fame and fortune it's about you know figuring out who you are and how you fit into the film world as a whole yeah it's a uh, that's a great takeaway because we were talking about it it's like almost the festivals have become the filmmakers version of a, a conference you know or a convention that other mm -hmm. industries have and there's not really one for filmmakers in that sense so if you take it that uh from that perspective you can find your audience find your your tribe and find uh, your community and you know so yeah that's some great stuff well thank you so much chris for coming on and oh, my pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me and i will definitely catch up with you later and i will uh, of course supply all the show notes and uh in the podcast so if people you know find this podcast on filmtrooper.com they will see everything all the links to what you're doing uh, uh your consulting services you offer as well as uh, your book and uh, your website and that concludes my interview with the film festival coach himself, Christopher Holland. And you can check out what he's doing over at filmfestivalsecrets.com. If you like this podcast, then think about leaving a ratings and review over on iTunes. Just go to filmtrooper.com forward slash iTunes and leave a rating and review. And I want to thank Nine Blackman for leaving a five-star rating and review over at iTunes. The headline for his review was, I completely respect the process. Actually, I don't even know if it's a a man. It could be a woman. It just says nine black men. I just assume it's a guy. <laughs> Again, thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time on the Film Trooper Podcast.